the omniscient. God never thinks about anything. He uses anthropomorphic terms for us to kind of understand that God doesn't consider anything. He doesn't think about anything. God doesn't Google anything. His knowledge is, all knowledge is there immediately. That's the one who's for us. And we have to believe that not just intellectually, but viscerally. We got to really believe that. Who is for us? He is for us. So, when Numbers says, Lord bless you and keep you. If God has blessing you, it's irrevocable. If he's keeping you, you can't be tampered with. He's your God. Father, we thank you so much for your, your word and your abiding presence. Forgive us, O oh God, when we treat you like just another super person rather than God Almighty, the Ancient of Days. Lord God, I pray in the name of your Son that you fill our hearts with holy confidence. Take us, Lord Jesus, to where you want us to be. Lord, we've heard a lot from your word this week. I pray, Father God, that you will bring back to our remembrance the things that need to be applied to our particular specific context and situation. Lord, may the enemy not steal the equity. Lord, leverage it, multiply it, and use it. Now give us the ability to think and concentrate, Father, today, this moment. Once again, I pray that I will not be a distraction and may my feeble attempts at articulation not take us down unnecessary bunny trails. But may we hear everything that you're saying and may our souls say hallelujah. We receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful week. I, I just can't. My son Brian has been here a number of times and I've heard about the beauty of Mount Hermon. Buddies of mine have spoken here through the years and all of this, but you got to be here to really love it and enjoy it. And I, this has been this has been incredible, and it's been absolutely wonderful. And I just uh, it's been a treat to be with uh, uh, my youngest son Brendan and how he's blessed my soul. And thank you, son, for your study and and diligence and yes. Once again, I'm glad I didn't kill you growing up, so just uh, praise for God for that. Came close. But <laughs> I could tell you stories about him, but maybe catch me later on. I'll fill you up with some of those things. Not platform worthy. Uh, so <laughs> but it's just been a, a treat. He's, they've got to go back uh, today. Uh, uh, their oldest, Lonnie, celebrates her birthday tomorrow, and uh, I always riff already whispered her in the ears, make her dad spend a lot of money, and uh, so, but they got to leave this afternoon, and uh, it's a blessing. I'm going to miss them, but it, I really, you know, my, it's my grandkids, you know, my, my children just exist for transportation for my grandkids, <laughs> you know, and uh, when they come to visit us, the, the, for our, our grown kids, when they come to visit us, we've got a three-day rule. You know, if God can raise Jesus from the dead in three days, they can get out of my house in three days. So <laughs> it's just, a, you know, the grandkids can stay as long as they want, but it's the, the parents are the one that brings the drama, you know. <laughs> the kids are cool. So, uh, 
Sorry to say I'm joking, but this is the element of truth today. <laughs> so this has been a just, just a wonderful, delightful time. And thank you for your hospitality. And thank you for, I mean, you all are just, this is just a great group of people here. I see why folks just keep coming back here, watching the camaraderie, the, 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 the togetherness. And people saying, well, I've been coming here for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and all of this stuff. It's just been, been, been really, really great. Um, I want to land a plane today in sort of a summary message of, of what, um, what I've shared this week. And I, and, and I want to draw your attention to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter, chapter 2. And just leave your Bible or device open there for, for a while. Have you ever talked to people, someone who's dying, an older person? Um, isn't it amazing how essence they are? Uh, a lot of stuff doesn't make any difference anymore. A lot of things that they used to get ticked off about and upset about, they're, they're like D-minus F issues. But they're talking about the stuff that really matters. We understand they've, they're, they're, they're looking at the other side right here. And most of their life, their, all of their life is in the rearview mirror. And what's the enduring stuff? What lasts forever? Some years ago, I was traveling, and uh, in fact, I was in Dallas, Texas to speak, and I had gotten into a hotel that evening, and I just flipped on the television, and there was uh, the tape-delayed broadcast of uh, Sammy Davis Jr.'s memorial service. I thought that was a long time ago. And, uh, and I was intrigued as I was watching all these tributes. But the tribute that grabbed my attention was Gregory Hines. Uh, Gregory Hines has since passed on, but I, I didn't know that Sammy Davis Jr. had had such a profound impact on Gregory Hines. Sammy Davis Jr. was legendary for his generosity, especially to his friends. Hines told the story that when he was a little boy, he and his uh, brother would sneak into the Apollo Theater there in Harlem to watch Sammy Davis Jr. and his uncle perform. And, uh, and lo and behold, as Gregory Hines' career began to eat forward, he came on the radar of Sammy Davis Jr. And, and Sammy Davis sort of adopted him as a son and opened doors for him. Uh, uh, helped him during hard times, got him gigs and all of these things, and just put him on his shoulders, and, and, and Hines said he just catapulted his career forward. Well, fast forward, um, Sammy Davis Jr. died, as you know, of throat cancer, and uh, Hines told a story that about just 10 days or two weeks before he passed away, he went to go see his mentor and father figure. And as he went into the Went into the house and Sammy Davis Jr. couldn't he couldn't talk at this point. The, the ravages of the disease were taking his voice away. Hines said he sat down next to him on a couch and uh, tearfully told him how much he meant to him and gave him a tribute and thanked him for all that he had done for him. And he re and he leaned over and he kissed him on his cheek. 
And Hines says he got up and was walking toward the door, tears flowing down his cheeks, realizing that this was probably the last time he'd see him. And then he says something strange happened. As he was walking toward the door, he heard this shuffling behind him. And he turned around, and lo and behold, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. was only this slight man, and here's this emaciated figure. And Heinz says he does this to me. What's in your hands? What are we placing in the hands of the next generation? This scene here in 1 Kings chapter 2, David is dying. He's dying. And he calls his son Solomon in. Solomon is next in line. I love these four verses here in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's the essence of legacy. There's no fluff or filler in these verses. David gets right down to business. David's dying. And Solomon is next. But it's interesting, the tenor and tone of the conversation here. David is, is telling Solomon what he needs to do in order to leave footprints in the sands of time during his moment in history. But as you read these verses, he's driving him to decision and choice. Decision and choice. But here, 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 here's the big, big point. You see, when you're born, when we're born, we look like our parents. But when we die, we look like our decisions. And so he's saying to Solomon, look, look, your future, your moment in history, what's going to take place, your legacy is not the stories about me. It's all going to depend upon these three decisions that you need to make. Now, let me give you those decisions, and then we'll put some meat on the skeleton. And they, 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 they're very obvious, and I've kind of trampled over this all week long, and it's the same kind of stuff that, that Paul, who's dying, is basically saying to Timothy, right? There's these three decisions, three pillars. This is going to trans, transform your moment in history. This is going to give weight to you. This is the stuff that will be in the ballast hole of your soul that will carry you through. But these are not automatic. You're going to have to make these decisions. And they're so painfully simple and obvious. But David's dying. He says, first of all, Solomon, you need to decide, decide to live courageously. Secondly, Solomon, you need to decide, decide to live obediently. And thirdly, Solomon, you need to decide, decide to live faithfully. That's it. That's it. That's what you need to do. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 2. <laughs> Verse 1 says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded his son, Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I don't want to be overly traumatic playing with the passage here, but, uh, you know, David's probably weak. He's in his chambers. 
his voice is probably not strong at all. It's almost as if Solomon walks in and says, come, come in here. I'm about to die. But then David says, that is the Lord. Be strong and show yourself. He says, in so many words, Solomon, decide to be courageous. Now, it's interesting to me how many times in the Old Testament particularly, these attributes are commanded. They're declarative. They're outside of ourselves. It's the same thing you fast forward over to Joshua chapter 1 when God comes to Joshua he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't interact with him. He doesn't give him a Myers-Briggs. He doesn't give him a profile test to see if he's wired for courage. No, I'm serious. I'm not being funny here. He, he doesn't know. I'm not putting that stuff down. We've used them with teams that I've served on. And I think they're helpful and all of that stuff. But, but, but God says to, uh, in Joshua chapter 1 to Joshua, and, you know, God doesn't have a speech impediment, so when he says something three times in an immediate context, you better pay attention. Three times he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. In other words, just as David is saying to Solomon, Solomon, look, 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 son. You, you, you got to show yourself a man. In other words, he was telling Solomon, you need to make up your mind to be what the position requires. You need to make up your mind to be what the position requires. you got to decide that. you got to decide it. There comes a point, there's always gaps, by the way. There's always gaps between who we are and what God's called us to do. This is the reason why you have to hold some of these personality profiles and these tests with an open hand. I'm, I'm, I'm not poo-pooing them, but you got to hold them with an open hand because on your way to doing something, you have to become something. And it's the gap that will cause you to grow. And you've got to decide to lean into the gap and not to, not to shrink back from it. And that's what he was telling Solomon. Solomon, listen, listen, this is what the position requires. David knew that there were some bad actors in his, in his cabinet. He also knew that Solomon was significantly different than he was. Solomon grew up with a lot of cotton around him. I mean, just as Brendan so eloquently went through there, that whole situation is Ziklag. You know, they, David was tough. David ran from Saul for 16 years, hiding out in caves and this kind of thing. You know, we, we have this picture of David as being, oh, this sweet, laid-back psalmist. Well, I, not, yeah, it's part of him, but it ain't all of him. David was tough. In fact, you recall that God said to David, he gave him this vision uh, for, for the building a temple. Then he said, I don't think I'm going to let you do that because you kind of like shed too much blood. So let's, let's just open and see a little new business for your son. So here you have this live, living legend, 
David at this juncture in his life was the most powerful, revered king in the then known world. But he knew that Solomon, Solomon didn't grow up high in his teachings. He didn't grow up excited. Son Solomon grew up, he preached it all. He was, I mean, he had a lot of stuff. You know, he had the accoutrements of his daddy's success. He had servants running all over the place. He had clothes. He had bling bling and all this stuff. And David is trying to warn him that uh, how you grew up may not help you. Because this is not going to be, the cotton's getting ready to be removed here. The cushion is going to be removed here. And brother, you're going to have it. So he just shows himself a man. He was also telling, telling his son that you don't run, Dwayne. You don't run. You press into it. Show up. Don't hit the rewind button when there's uh, pressure placed on you. I served uh, on staff for 27 years with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, and uh, you know, the last 15 years or so that I was in leadership, I was an associate U.S. director and some other things. There, there was a young man that reported to the division that I was over uh, to someone else, but I, I, I really liked this young man. He had an extraordinary gifts and abilities, very articulate, sharp as all get out, had a presence about him. However, he was, he was developing a habit that I found a little bit troubling. You see, in large organizations, you can hide. You know what I mean? Uh, you, you can hide. You can kind of like transfer when they need it. And, and, and he began, as I watched from a distance, whenever the pressure would be turned up on him, he would like, oh, God's calling me to do this. Oh, we want to change. We want to press over here. So one day I just called him in the office because I heard that he was kind of doing this again. And so I said, hey, you know, what's up? And uh, he said, well, well you know, I, you know, I, I, I want to try going here and I, I state my views. And I, I hate that kind of stuff. The young guys that I mentor, they know I go ballistic whenever they say that. I mean, shut up, man. You ain't stating nothing. You know, excuse my directness, but it's a little, you know, come on, get the pacifier out of your mouth, boy. Uh, I paint my dues. He's whining. So, so, <laughs> sorry. But, but, uh, but he, he said he paid his dues. And he said, I, I, you know, and I, you know, I, I see you, what, what you're doing. I like to do that. I want to inside. I want to see you. Nice. I, I said, you know what? I'm going to shoot straight to you. I'm going to tell you like I tell my men, okay? And you're going to get mad when I do this. But I, I need to tell you this. God won't give you what you need or what you want because you won't stick around long enough to get what you need. You won't finish the endurance. And so you're going to get a platform, but you're going to be superficial. And by the way, you're going to hurt a lot of people who listen to you because you have nothing under the counter. You've got to have more under the counter than you put on display, folks. And this is exactly what David was telling his son. He was saying, Solomon, Solomon, wait, 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 wait. 
Don't think because you're related to me and then you're on the coattails of your daddy, David, and all of this stuff that automatically that sets you up for success. You got to decide, make up your mind that you're not going to run, that you're going to finish the endurance ride, that you're going to be the last man standing, that you're going to fear God more than you fear circumstances. By the way, that's what courage is. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the direction of your fear. If you fear God more than you do circumstances, you will always come out courageous. But Solomon, you need to decide, decide to live courageously. The second thing he says to his son is, David realizes the end is near. Man, I wish I could have been flying the wall there in that conversation. Secondly, he says, Solomon, you you need to make a decision now. You need to decide. You need to decide to live obediently. Verse 3 says, and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do wherever you think that there was a lot of stuff swirling around that was eloquent that wasn't being said from David when he made that statement. I think the ellipsis is Solomon, you know about the stuff between me and God, right? Okay, you know about that. You know about my sins. You know about your three brothers that died prematurely because of what I did, right? He was was probably saying, Solomon, Solomon, buddy, listen to me. Don't Don't be morally stupid. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. That's out of your control, buddy. In the words of Chuck Swindoll, all sin means to live in a state of temporary insanity. He's saying if God's hand is going to be on you, boy, then you have to be passionate about obedience. Passionate about obedience. There's a relationship between your obedience to God and the impact of your life. You can't compartmentalize that. You can't build a wall between that. You can't have a hidden life over here. You can't cultivate this garbage over here and expect the hand of God to be on you. I tell you what, I have talked to too many, too many Christian leaders that I know of who have cultivated a hidden life, thinking that their gifts will win the day, that their talents will win the day, that their ability to turn a phrase will win the day. And they operate from their gifts. But their character or their lack of character in the end always, 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 always tell the nobody ever, ever, ever gets away with anything. Ever. There is no such thing. And this is what David is saying here. Son, there's too much at stake. You're going to be the leader of this nation. And your leadership has nothing to do with the bling bling and the chariots and and the pomp and splendor and the trumpets that are calling and your ability to give orders to people. But you've got to lead out of the integrity and consistency of your dependence upon a living God. 
You understand me, Solomon? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? The only reason why you have a platform to lead is because God is trusting you that you will be one who follows. It's your obedience. It's your obedience. I fear in Christian circles. I, I really do. I, I just think this 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 celebrity thing that we got going on here and all of this other kind of stuff. I, you know, we, we set these dudes up for failure. I, and you know, guys, I, my, you know, I teach in some of these seminaries and this kind of thing. We 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 set them up for entitlement. We spend more time helping them to craft their gifts when we ought to be spending more time helping them to chisel away the sin in their character. Because God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And it's the godliness. And this is what David is saying. Listen, I, I learned this the hard way. Brendan pointed out. I mean, David David went through some times of, of, of spiritual drought. He lost his vision. He made some bad choices and bad decisions. And he's trying to say, Solomon, exhibit A, buddy. Come on, man. I shudder to think what would have happened if Nathan didn't come over there and bust my chops. Come on, boy. Don't hurt these people because of your disobedience. Did you hear what I just said? Don't hurt your family because of your disobedience. Don't hurt the people who are trusting you because of your disobedience. So Solomon, you you need to decide. You need to decide to live courageously, to live obediently. And then he says, thirdly, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man in the throne of Israel. Be faithful. Now, I, technically speaking, I get it. Faithfulness prop is a subset of obedience. But I wanted to parse it out a little bit. It was Eugene Peterson says that... Uh, Faithfulness is a long obedience in the train to excellence. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is doing consistently the next right thing. Consistently the next right thing. Consistently the next right thing. And I think what David is saying to Solomon here, don't, don't get your, don't get your, don't become a head case. It's not the big dream and the big vision but it's the stewardship of the incremental moments that matter. It's the stewardship of these incremental moments that matter. Faithfulness, character, and integrity are intertwined. Intertwined. You can't build good character, and you will not have integrity unless there is faithfulness. If God can't trust you with the next 10 minutes, what makes him think he can trust you with the next 10 years? Listen, 
I'm 71 years old, and at this stage in my life, I've completed a number of things, and here's one of the big conclusions I've come to. I've concluded over all these years of ministry and recent years mentoring younger leaders and this kind of thing, that gifts, talents, and abilities typically are overrated. They're typically overrated. You know how many dudes I've met who can preach the birds out of, out of, out of trees, who can sing and who can do all these other things who have crashed and burned? It's, all, it's almost countless. Gifts, talents, and abilities are always typically overrated. However, paradoxically, faithfulness is tragically underrated. You give me a team. You give me a team of C, C-plus people when it comes to gifts, talents, and abilities, but they're A-plus when it comes to faithfulness, I'll beat the snot out of your team who are extraordinarily gifted. Just doing the next right thing. Consistently coming after it. See, Solomon, 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 this is the deal. This is going to win the day. This is going to win you over. This is going to be the integrity of your life and, and, and your leadership. This is going to bring the smile and favor of God. This is the enduring principle. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. You know, I think a lot about faithfulness in my own heart and life. I, I, throughout my adult years, I don't know that there's been a day or so that's ever gone by that I've not thought about my dad. Uh, next to Jesus Christ, my father has had the greatest impact on my life. But the reason why he's had that is because of what has been given to him. You see, my great-grandfather was a slave. His name was Peter, Peter Loretta. Uh, in fact, he was uh, owned by uh, the son of a German Reformed pastor by the name of Abraham Lorig, L-O-R-I-G-G. Migrated from Germany to Western North Carolina uh, in the early 1800s. It was a huge, it was a large German community there. Uh, and uh, his sons became, he had three sons, and they, uh, several of them were killed in that night. I believe became prosperous landowners, and one of them owned my great grandfather, Peter. Uh, some people say, well, didn't this great great grand No, my great grandfather, my dad was born February 13th, 1914. And so my dad remembered Peter. Peter lived to be an old man. And my father used to tell stories about Peter who would sit on the rock on, on the front porch of the old homestead there in Conover, North Carolina. And uh, he was illiterate. And as the story goes, he would, he would just sing there, sit there, my dad says, most of the day and just rock back and forth and sing and pray. Now get this. He was illiterate, but he had memorized portions of the scriptures. And as the story goes, uh, uh, he would make his children and grandchildren read him favorite or familiar passages of Scripture to him over and over and over and over and over and over again, and the old boy couldn't hit it except the Lord. Love the Lord. Love the Lord. There's no record of his mother or his father because Jesus came in that, into his life through four generations, strong, godly men. My grandfather, Milton, had 14 kids, seven boys and seven girls, acquired some land. He needed some land. And uh, 
love the Lord Jesus. Gave the land for Thomas Chapel, Amy Zion Church, to be built on across from the old homestead there. But there was uh, there was a cemetery that was already there back over in that park. And Peter is buried back there, although we can't find his tomb. Fast forward for the sake of time. My uh, son Brian and I, a few years back, uh, we were speaking at the Billy Graham Center there in uh, Nashville, North Carolina, and we had some time off. And where the Billy Graham Center is in Cove is only about 50 miles from the old homestead. And I said, Brian, you want to go back to Conover? And just sort of look, let's walk through that cemetery. Brian hadn't been there since he was a little boy. I hadn't been there in years or anything like that. So we got in the car and we went, and I was kind of surprised. I said, I was at my duck, bottom of my duck, that I found my way over there. And uh, so we get to the cemetery, and about a third to half the people buried back there are Laritza's own babies. And so as we were walking through the cemetery, we couldn't find Peter's grave. He's back there somewhere. I don't know if he took it or whatever happened, but uh, I start pointing out who these people are. I said, Brian, son, here's your, here's your, here's your prop-ups. Here's your prop-ups parents. There's your great-grandfather, Milton, and your great-grandmother, Anna, and your great-uncle, Annie, and your great-uncle, Waddell, and your great-auntie, Anna, Annie over here. And as I began pointing these people out, I got members from those families who weren't here. And I just said to Brian, son, these people came through Jerusalem. Nobody ever knows anything about them. But boy, the book that was written was fractured and bent, you know. It favored a group of people who knew nothing about them. Could it be, could it be the prayers of an old French lady sitting on the front porch in Conover, North Carolina, as Lockwood was praying in the early 1900s? And God said, during our moment in history, answer the prayer. Don't ever, 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 ever think that greatness is visibility or passion. Greatness is presence. And this is what David, the legendary leader, was trying to tell his son, Solomon, Solomon. This is the stuff that will carry the woman. Postscript, we know that Solomon wasn't perfect. We know that Solomon wasn't truthfully, he died a whole monkey. And he's not. God has. Make sure you tell your kids. Tell your kids. God has no grandchildren. He doesn't have any grandchildren. And just because you've been exposed does not mean that you have the spirit to read and learn. I want to read this little poem and then pray for us. I uh, I served on the board. I was privileged to serve on the board for a number of years at Columbia International University, which is called Columbia Bible College and Seminary there in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, one of my mentors was a man by the name of Robinson Kilchrist, Robinson Kilchrist, who was the president. In fact, his father had founded the Jewish 
nothing but uh, humble me and self-abase me. Uh, one of the godliest things, and I'm supposed to flirt him in a, as I go next. He would not know that if he sat in his presence because he was so others-oriented. Fast forward, his, his wife had uh, come down with Alzheimer's disease, and uh, it began to deteriorate and decline really, really fast. And I'll never forget this board member that Robert came to me in Lawrence, and uh, he said he was going to resign. And I, I'll never forget him. He was a board member of the church. I said, what does he mean? Is he the head of the church? Oh, Phil, what, 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 what's his position? And Robert said, he doesn't have one. She has sacrificed so much for him all these years, and he's now mine. Yeah. And then he stood up and read this poem that he had written, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. The title of the poem is Let Me Get Home Before Dark. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of the years long forgotten. I fear not death, for the, that grim foe betrays himself at last thrust of me forever into life, life with you, unsoiled and free. But I do fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late? I fear that before I finish, I might stain and maim your honor, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. Will my life show the darkness of a spirit grown mean and small, fruit shrivel on the vine, bitter to the taste of my companion, a burden to be borne by those who, those brave few who love me still? No, Lord, let the truth grow lush and sweet, a joy to all who taste, a spirit sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, brighter at the end. Lord, let me get home before dark. Will it be the darkness of tattered gifts, rust locks, half spent, a life that was once used of God now set aside? Grief for glories gone or fretting for a task God never gave. Mourning in the hollow chambers of memory, gazing on the faded banners of victories long gone. Cannot I run well unto the end? Lord, let me get home before dark. The out of me decays, I do not fret or ask for reprieve. The ebbing strength that weans me from Mother Earth and grows me up for heaven. I do not cling to the shadows cast by mortality. I do not patch the scaffold lent to build the real eternal me. I do not clutch about me my cocoon, vainly struggling to hold toxic tree spirit, pressing to be born. But will I reach the gate and lingering pain, body distorted, grotesque? Or will it be a mind wandering untethered among like fantasies or grim tales? Of your grace, Father, I humbly ask for peace. Let me get home before dark. I believe that's what David was saying to Solomon. Buddy, if you're going to make it home before dark, you've got some decisions to make. like a shadow. And when you die, you look like a 
Lord Jesus, help us. Help us. Help us to stay pressed into you, Lord, rendering us effective. Help us not to be giggish or foppish about our Christianity. But help us to take seriously our moment in history and the calling that you've given to us. And may we steward it well. Help us, Lord God, that when we fail, that we are disciplined and to pursue repentance immediately. To close the gaps. Lord, don't allow calluses to develop around our hearts and cause us procrastination and the coddling of, of disobedience. Keep us sensitive to you, sensitive to your spirit. Help us, oh God, to pay attention to the small things, the little things that we would take for granted or we want to take shortcuts over. Oh God, may we not do that. Give us a hunger for you and a passion for holiness, we pray. That old-fashioned word. Lord, help us to be portraits of the desired destinations and not just a bunch of articulate folks spouting out a bunch of statements and ideas and nice-sounding, attractive sayings. But may we be the real deal because you are the real deal in us. So strengthen us, we pray, God. Give us what we need. Lord, we don't have in ourselves what we need, but paradoxically, we have who we need. And help us, oh God, to fall at your feet, claim your strength, tap into your power, and keep moving toward Calvary. In Jesus' name.